guys this is going to be an this is going to be a difficult uh, you know let's address the situation immediately right off the you know off the cuff here we are in we've all moved into rooms. four separate sheds we have moved into four separate sheds for this week's episode and it may just turn out as audio we're not quite sure yet we may get the video in here but for now we're recording both video and audio in our separate homes so you know, forgive us for any clinks that we may. Clinks is clinks a word? I'm uh, pretty any... sure that's a racist clink? comment. I'm oh, pretty no. sure that's got to be a racist <laughs> no, thing. Hey, are you kidding me, Jordan? Did you really say that? You said a few few choice words previously, so I mean, I think I think. Well, I'm not going to say those words. Never mind. Keep going. You know Carry what? On. I'm going to stick with clinks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to stick with clinks. And we're, we're, we're trying something new. So as we go through this quarantine time, we've quarantined ourselves. Now let's try to have a valuable discussion this evening. Is there any, any anybody want to introduce the topic for us tonight? <clears throat> oh, wow. I I can I can I can do it. So uh, the the topic, uh, the general topic that we're going to talk about today is shame and guilt, um, and how that is uh, portrayed, and how how that comes to life in our society, and and how there's you know a genuine kind of lack of authenticity and in, in being real. Um, and we're going to talk talk about shame and guilt as it as it uh, belongs in you know a historical or evolutionary setting, and then kind of dive into some of the issues that that I think we see I personally see in in the church uh being the the Mormon faith that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh and how shame and guilt are uh you know not uh, having some negative side effects that I don't think are really talked about enough so I think that's kind of the general uh outline of, of what we want to talk about today although all right I could just be looking at the wrong page of our Google Doc. So, so as I was like preparing for this, we we kind of gave each of these like guilt a definition, and the definition was you know fairly simple. We just said guilt is uh, I did something bad, versus shame being I am bad, right? Like we move past like a particular action we took that may have been a wrong action and we just decide to place this uh, heavy burden of I am a bad person. So I think going into this in the onset, I think it's important to recognize that they're different things. And I think that maybe we can start here. I feel like there is space for guilt. Like, I think guilt is an essential part of life. Like, we should feel remorse for bad choices because then it helps us to make better choices next time we're put into a similar scenario. Um, I think the real question is, how, how do you limit shame, you know, and make sure that uh, institutions or organizations or really any kind of setting you're placed into doesn't, uh, doesn't place shame? And, you know, how can we improve that? So is there a particular question or launching point that we'd like to take? Zach, go ahead. 
Yeah, so I, I, I love that, as, as often has been the case in our discussions, that um, Spencer is, I think, wanting to get into the pain points of contemporary issues. And I love that. And I think that I would like to lean on Brian as an introductory resource to provide a more scientific context for what we understand um, in regards to guilt and shame. One thing that I thought was interesting in some of my uh, studying this week was just that in human development, when you know young children, babies, toddlers, and Brian and Spencer can probably speak more anecdotally to this than I can, but um, guilt and, and shame is not really a conscious emotion in the early stages. Um, that it is not, um, that a newborn baby, you don't see shame or guilt. Um, I don't know when the timing is, supposedly, when, when we, we've, where we've tried to pinpoint the emergence of shame and guilt or an awareness of guilt. Um, but I think it would be good to talk a little bit about what we know about the emotion, some explanations that we've explored in the world, and then see what it might have to do with what we're experiencing now and then go from there. Awesome. Yeah. Jordan, any thoughts before I jump into the history? Yeah, no, that's what I was, I was going to ask you to jump into the history because I think perhaps it began with, and you'll probably go into this uh, somewhat of a survival instinct. And to Zach's point, um, from what I understand, children are quite narcissistic up until at least age four. So, and, and speak for yourself. Continue that. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah I'll let you jump into it, Brian. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, I, I think it's fairly consensus among experts that humanity, you know, the human race evolved for hundreds of thousands of years in kind of hunter gatherer tribes limited by Dunbar's number, which is 150 people, roughly. Um, if you don't know what that is, go go Wikipedia, the trash out of that. Uh, some great information there. But uh, essentially, uh, farming didn't exist until about 12,000 years ago, as, as experts believe it today. Um, and prior to that, people lived in these kind of small uh, tribes, right, of a few, you know, extended families, a few, a few families. And, and they had to be mobile, right, for, for you know, gathering various, uh, to be able to, you know, uh, subsistence, you know, feed themselves and, and whatnot. So um, living in such a tight-knit community, uh, in a tight-knit, you know, everybody kind of had a purpose, uh, everybody had a responsibility, and shame and, and guilt were essentially uh, survival mechanisms for, for these groups as, you know, in, in kind of in the, the hunter-gatherer mindset, you know, if, if one person doesn't uphold their job that, or do their job, that means their sister or their cousin or their second cousin dies because they didn't, they didn't do what they needed to. So they, you know, essentially um, shame and guilt, you know, arose out of a necessity to, uh, to make sure that there was group cohesion and that everybody was focused on the good of the whole rather than the good of the individual. Um, you know, we, I, I sent out a link. I don't know if you guys looked at, um, looked at a couple of those articles in the Google doc, but you know, one of the comments was talking about how, uh, 
I think the comment was that the fact that the same pattern is encountered in such mutually remote communities suggests that shame's match to audience devaluation is a design feature crafted by natural selection. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious, were, were there hunter-gatherer tribes that just didn't have shame as a survival mechanism and they just died off because people did the wrong stuff? I'm, I'm curious as to that, but... Um, but yeah, so that's the, so there, I mean, there is a, a very strong purpose for, for shame and for guilt to make sure that, uh, you know, individuals are not making decisions that are going to be detrimental to, um, to themselves or to, to others around them. So that's, that's kind of the basics there. Don't we see it also in certain animals? Uh, I mean, they, they can reject or even exile their own if if they're not pulling their weight so to speak from what i've seen on you know blue planet or planet earth <laughs> yeah that's interesting so, zach it, I, I think it's a natural tendency zach you had zach, something you have <clears throat> um well yeah, i was thinking i just because i mean we're not experts and and brian is is still very i think has definitely studied this a lot more than i have and and i'm i'm glad that he was able to provide that context and hopefully he'll continue to do so. Um, my, I think I'm interested also in, you know, trying to imagine or understand some of the mechanisms in play, because I think, as Spencer said, we're going to probably move on to how guilt and shame have been leveraged inappropriately and trying to have a healthier approach towards guilt and shame, um, understanding it like any other human emotion. Um, we may not understand um, how it became a part of our nature, or how it was first leveraged as a part of nurture and how that combination has created a lot of what Brian said were um, marked similarities across tribes that had no communication with each other whatsoever. So that it is human to have shame and guilt um, and maybe another species. She's like, I, I think some of my biggest burning questions is you know, why do we feel shame? How much of it is, is learned um, and how much of it is self-inflicted, um, especially when we talk about guilt and whatever different social mores there are um, in the world. Yeah, I think that's interesting, but I also think that in these early times, I feel like guilt was, is a natural result of a poor decision guilt is a natural result of a poor decision. So in these hunter-gatherer societies long, long ago, like if you don't take care of your family, you feel guilty. Or if you don't fulfill responsibility, you feel guilty. I think that uh, shame is the thing that they, they used um, guilt as a weapon against that particular person. So I think like at some point, right. like shame, shame is like the the bludgeon to say you feel you feel guilty see now that means you're bad like or or in some way they used a natural um a natural response Tendency, to making yeah. a poor decision to uh, you know as a weapon <clears throat> or you could you could define it probably as an internal feeling that is guilt and then it becomes an external uh source of whether or not you're worthy of mm -hmm. love or worthy of acceptance. I heard a definition today. Uh, I think it was Russell Brand that was saying that shame is essentially the feeling you feel 
when you don't feel worthy of other people's connection or worth mm. or love. Mm. So, mm. yeah, oh, and I, go and ahead. That that would make sense in that context with the hunter gatherer. Go ahead, Bry. Yeah, yeah. So a couple thoughts. So, um, you know, in my in, me, in my MBA uh, program, we talked a lot about Carol Dweck, uh, her research. Um, she's she's you know famous for having developed this uh, what's called fixed versus growth mindset and and how that's used in parenting. So, you know, how frequently do do we hear parents say, "Oh man." You are you're the best artist I've ever seen, you know, talking to a little uh, son or daughter or wow, you are so good at that. Um, so I think from, uh, you know, we're just ignorant to our actions and what, uh, you know, we are ingraining in in our you know children from a young age that they either are good or are not good. Right. That things are either born with you or or not. Um, and, and she talks about, you know, growth mindset and how. You know, it's it's much more important to focus on. Wow, you worked so hard, right? You're praising work ethic in, in the process. Um, to to Zach's question, though, you know, how how do we develop shame, and and how does guilt, you know, how, how does it come about um, outside of a, a you know a religious context, but more in a cultural or, or a societal context? You know, the the wonderful democracy that we live in. Essentially, we're being marketed to at every turn and the the best way for companies to market to individuals is to tell them you're not good enough but you will be with our makeup right you're going to attract all these guys or or whatever so i think a lot of the marketing around us and the message from society and from companies that are trying to increase their revenue is just hey uh your life sucks but with our product or service it's going to be a whole lot better so i i do think that plays a part in it which you know, it's, good, good and bad. Pros yeah, and cons. I was listening to a video by Brene Brown this morning and she completely was saying stuff along those lines saying that shame is, comes in two different flavors, I guess. Um, when we seek to aspire to something, um, one element of shame is, um, but think of every bad thing you've done. Like, how can you accomplish this thing? Look at all these mistakes that you've made in the past uh, that disqualify you from being able to move forward. Um, and then, uh, the second one is similar, but she did a better job of explaining how distinct it is. It was something along the lines of who do you think you are? Like why, why of all people would you be the one who could be successful in this endeavor? Mm. Um, so like feelings of coming up short, maybe not having it in you, um, is I guess a form of shame. And, and just like Brian said, we see a lot of marketing that I think either, um, goes and takes on that negative side of if you don't use this product then you won't be enough or the the rah 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 you are more than enough no matter what which i still think also misses the mark maybe on the other side because it goes along with what brian said earlier where you have like a child and you're like oh my gosh that's so good you're the best artist ever when mm. objectively they're <laughs> not <laughs> you know right right and, and so maybe you know focusing more on the effort and and the value of of trying something and not you know just sitting there and watching the world go past you um and not being intimidated by how big the world is seeing these like natural marketing like putting that into practice i was just talking with a coworker recently and she has a son that's <clears throat> twins actually that are i don't know 14 or 15 and 
<laughs> you know, the thing nowadays, when we were kids, it was the Razor phone. I don't know if you remember, like the Razor phone was the thing to have. And if you didn't have a Razor, you weren't cool. Uh, I didn't have a Razor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Zach was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like thing is like, yeah, I, I loved my razor. Oh, for sure, man. I that was a moment where I definitely feel like I was enough. I'll like directly admit to that that I it, at moments of low feelings, I would uh, think of the fact that I had a razor and I feel just a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's to admit it. Here's the point though: is the, this these <laughs> twins that are 15 years old, right? He wanted to have AirPods. Like that is the thing to have. The so if you walk around and you've got one one airpod in that's not connected it's suit yeah like zach's got going on right now so it's it's one of those things where it's like these are awesome um and in order to fit he didn't have them and she caught him one day taking old iphones oh i like iphone headphones with the wire and cutting it at the nubbin like right up close so that he could put them in his ear so from far away it looked like he had airpods and the fascinating part about that is exactly what Brian just said, which is all of our marketing drives us to essentially say we're not enough unless we have X, Y, and Z, you, you are not enough. And, you know, that's sad, but it plays into the, it plays into the mindset of all of these kids uh, naturally. Uh, without them even knowing it, suddenly they're pulling out scissors and, and cutting headphones that work perfectly well yeah. Just because they want to look, you know what I mean? They're destroying yeah. something that works so that they look cooler. <laughs> the shame or feel better. Literally driving them to do irrational things. It yeah. literally makes no sense, but to portray an image of something that they want to adopt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think, think about how much we, I mean, think about how much we, at least me, you know, speaking of myself, thinking about how much I used to care about what I wore to school and how I looked in high school. I mean, I, that's, that's directly it, right? That's directly what we're talking about. And, and that's like a natural thing from, uh, that's not even coming from an institution, right? A particular institution. Right. That's just coming from a culture as a whole. That has nothing to do with the church that has nothing to do with anything. It's just what we do as people to uh, silently shame one another over things that really don't matter. Right. In 2020, like we live in a day and age where those things can be so globally communicated. Like you see uh, news articles of people on subways in China and they're holding what looks like an Apple phone. Like, so it, like literally there are some, there are some status pieces that are, this is wild, globally revered and, and like acknowledged. It's interesting. Yeah. And so here's never been like that. Yeah, here's a good segue question, I think. Um, are there certain cultures, if, if the, the shaming tendency is cross-cultural and it's just something naturally that we've had since the beginning, are there certain cultures um, that are more dangerous when it comes to applying that shame to individuals? Mm. And what do you guys think? Perhaps religious, perhaps other more secular ideas? What do you guys think? I think there's still meat on the bone, and I love that question, but I was thinking about um, just as we were talking about fitting in, 
do we think that there that maybe there's a spectrum of desire to fit in to where yes some of it is if i don't have this then i'm ashamed of who i am the status i have and or do is there any emotional pieces in that thinking that are not shame or guilt based it could it be um would you could we say appropriately that determination is a part of that maybe the the determination to have what others have is it, it could still be coming from the base of shame and wanting to have status but i think sometimes we look at people who are seeking for power and status and i is do we trace all of that back to shame and guilt or is there something else at play yeah good question this could be an ambition i i mean i do i do have a quick thought so in terms of like are there societies are there groups of people in which shame is more divisive than others um a couple of thoughts that I have is, you know, I think that, you know, we know that um, the suicide rates for teenagers here in Utah is really high. Uh, and, and I think that's directly correlated to the Mormon faith, right? Just because there's so much stress based. I mean, the LDS faith essentially tells you in, in, um, in Christianity in general is you are a flawed being. You are never good enough because you have to be perfect to get into the, the you know, eternal life. Um, obviously, that becomes possible through Jesus Christ. But yet that, that idea of like, you are never good enough. Um, I think that is, I don't know. I just, there's a part of me that just dislikes that because it, I don't know, it, it never allows someone to feel like they can take a break and just kind of relax for a minute and catch their breath. Um, so that's one idea. I would say the other thing that comes to mind is that I think we all experienced in being Lone Peak High School graduates, a cesspool of shame and guilt. I mean, me going to Utah Valley University after graduating from high school, I felt so less than with, you know, so many friends of mine getting 3.9 GPAs and, you know, getting scholarships to BYU and you were not successful until you get in, got into BYU. And parents who judged their success in life based on if their kids went on missions and got into BYU. I think we experienced like the epitome of shame and guilt coming from Alpine and Highland, Utah. So, that, yeah, that, uh, sorry, controversial. And then... Boop, and and then, and then throw in the mix uh, everything we've already talked about previously, which is, you know, some kids were getting <clears throat> cars purchased for them based on whether they joined the football team. So, so there was like, and, and there's people like Zach running around with razor phones, like they're nothing. Just Jeez, what a tool. <laughs> I, but, well, I, go ahead, Zach. Okay, cool. My, um, and I just had a completely different experience, you know, and I want to you speak went to, to BYU something. and I was in <laughs> Alpine. Right. And, um, Zach's also think, a dropout. I, that's true. I'm shaming him right now, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, just public so, shaming. <laughs> see but no but i think we'll go we'll get back to that later in the context of maybe how i feel about myself right and i think that yeah. brian is pointing out many accurate things you know that i think that a lot of 
a lot of people in our generation or in the generation before us or our parents generation was was very inflexible um and is still to a degree you know not um used and i don't know where this comes from and i don't and i'm not saying this to say that that is the problem other than i feel like my understanding of where um, maybe some of the the shame and guilt came from being passed from my parents generation to me um in, I'm grateful that I grew up in Alpine um, because my, my family was extremely blessed. We were so fortunate. Um, I could never say enough good things about all the opportunities that were given to me. And as has been indicated, I on paper maybe haven't made the most of the opportunities that I had in front of me. Um, but I was grateful that, you know, while yes, I had a car and while yes, I had a razor, as soon as the next cool phone came out six months later or a year later, I didn't have it. I loved my razor because I didn't always have the newest phone, but I think the timing of the contracts for my family's plan fit just right <laughs> to where I had access to the razor. And my mind was blown. Like my like my parents have budgeted Christmas, like they never I in my in our family there was never a spontaneous thing done. And so that was just nothing, it was just fate that, that I would have a razor. And, and I remember the supreme joy that I felt. And on a relative scale, is that frivolous? And maybe someone would just be like, there are people starving in China. Um, somebody in Africa has never seen a phone. You know, it, all that's true, but it did bring me a relative sense of joy, of a unique gift that I did not expect that was bestowed upon me and I felt joy um see zach the, zach i had a set of wheels i had a set of wheels and i had a razor but it was a scooter so that's like that was, <laughs> and anyway, keep, keep and going think, zach sorry no you're good and i'll try to wrap this up quickly i don't want to hog it but like in alpine i we were very well off right but there were people who were way better off right so i still I wasn't at the top and I still wanted things right. And it honestly, like I always make the joke that like I grew up in the, in the slums of Alpine, um, you know, and it was just, which is a total joke. <laughs> but, so, so Zach, what you're saying is, what you're saying is you were in the NBA, but you were not LeBron James. That's what you're saying. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, I, I'm definitely, I mean, and I remember in church, they, they would share statistics like you have a, whatever percent chance of being exactly where you are right now. So like born in the United States, born in 1989, uh, like just the odds that I would come into the world's history at this point and under the circumstances that I've been exposed to, like mathematically astronomical, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you can take whatever meaning you want out of it, but stuff like that did and does make me grateful for what I have. Am I a perfect example of gratitude? No. But, um, you know, I, I think sometimes we, we, while there are issues, I, I just hope that people don't always see that that means that there is an absence of the contrary. I love you seeing the positive there, Zach. So, Jordan, I need to hear your voice. What was your experience growing up? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, well, to Zach's last point, I was looking, uh, kind of considering how it was for me. Um, I was probably like, I wasn't at the top top, but I was slightly higher up on the hill, <laughs> uh, you could say, in Alpine. And uh, 
I'll be honest. I did. I made out with two of your neighbors. Entire... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Sorry, uh, we. I'll, uh, Don't say their names. Come on. I almost did. It's okay. I, think, I made out. I with think they've got friend. like five kids each by now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Actually, um, no. I I want to say though, my entire life, I never felt shame for not having what other people have, but I did feel significant amount of shame for having, I guess, more or being wealthy. It just kind of felt like that was always the, the, the area in which most people would, would shame. I, I felt like there was a bit of a look, it, I wouldn't, you couldn't say looking down upon, but it, it was like this this feeling of like, oh, you, you're rich, you're wealthy, you're LDS, you have everything handed to you on a silver platter. Um, yeah, that means you're lame. And, uh, and that, that could be true, you know, like it, it, is, it is hard to um, argue with the notion that, well, just because I was given everything doesn't mean I have everything. But that, that is actually, that's where I felt the most shame was was uh, from the fact that I was given a lot. Um, and then it obviously changed later, you know, upon entering the MTC um, and then entering BYU, <clears throat> there was an intense uh, drive to be, I guess, perfect. And that was mostly in my opinion, because I didn't understand what or who Jesus was. Right. But, uh, I don't know if that yep. answers your question. I, no. I, I would say, I would say like my I think experience. We're going to definitely go I, deeper. Yeah, we're going to go deeper into yeah. that particularly. But I think um, for me, and maybe I'm being totally vulnerable here, but uh, I felt uh, a huge sense of inadequacy. And it had nothing to do with like, it really didn't have anything to do with razor phones or what the cool new technology was. But uh you know, sometimes I would sit in like a, a Sunday school lesson or uh, thinking about preparing for a mission or all of these things. And I felt a, a significant level of uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not good enough for what what is required. And I think what's interesting is, you know, maybe in high school, uh, I don't know what I portrayed, but I know what I was trying to portray, which was perfection and everything's fine, you know, don't look behind the curtain because you're going to find a lot of, you know, it's, it's messy back there. So I, I, I felt, um, in fact, I'll share like a particular experience and maybe you guys can chime in on this. <clears throat> I went and spoke with my bishop one time uh, because of sins, right? So we get like <laughs> masturbation, <laughs> ma masturbation, pornography, right? So like, I, like I'm just being real here. Nobody and ever does that. Yeah, yep. and I, re I remember him saying, 97%. well, <laughs> well, you're not going to be able to partake of the sacrament for, you know, whatever. Uh, it was like two weeks or something like that. But I remember the tray getting passed around. I am sitting next to my mom. And you know what I mean? What do you do? You, you, you pass it down. Uh, and immediately, immediately yeah. she's just wondering, like, what's going <gasps> on? Yeah, what's going on? Yeah. Went and saw, went and saw the bishop. You, I always now, lied and just ate it. 
<laughs> well, I mean, and that's, that's, a, that's the problem, right? Is I feel right. like there are sometimes institutionally accidental <laughs> ways that we shame youth. So let's talk about that. Because I feel like, um, wouldn't it be better in my mind, like it's, it's similar to the experience of Jesus uh, sitting with the woman who's just been brought to him and they're saying, hey, she was caught in adultery, right? Freaking adultery. Let's, let's throw stones at her and kill her. And he's like, no, right, you know, let, let he who has, you know, without sin cast the first stone. Well, I feel like in my opinion, Christ uh, would want the people who have made mistakes to be t- partaking of the sacrament more during times of error to recognize that you're okay the way you are. You are a human being and you make mistakes. And so just, just the pain, the, 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 the shame that was like on, you know what I mean? Beat red face, completely embarrassed. Or Spencer, can you pass the sacrament? I can't. Now I'm telling a peer, my freaking, you know, it's, it's like one of those things where you're just like, man, I'm, and, and then you're thinking to myself, this kid doesn't struggle with it. None of these kids in this quorum struggle with it. It's just me. Yeah. I'm the yeah. idiot. I'm, I'm the mistake. You know what I mean? And so I think accidentally with some of the, cert, the ways we restrict service or restrict people's ability to be able to participate fully in church uh, is a accidental institutional shaming tactic anybody yeah i've I've got a institutional or cultural well it's in the handbook (laughs) i've i've got i've got a a, a, an example of not a not an example but both a, a religious and a social example so there's this in psychology, I think it's the field of psychology, there's a thing called social deprivation theory, I think it's called. It's essentially how, you know, it's been pretty well known that people on social media, right, post the good parts about their life, but not the bad parts about their life. So we tend to, you know, compare our worst versus their best. And that's the exact same thing, I think, going on in the church. And, and you know, Carly and I were talking about this this week, like the, 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 belief that I always had, and Carly mentioned this as well, is that every priesthood leader is spotless, has had a perfect record. Um, Everybody, you know, bears their testimony, never has any concerns about the gospel, doesn't sin. That's just, no one talks about the shit that they're going through and the problems that they have. And so we are always comparing our deep, dark secret to the view that we have with that person. And, um, and it's, I don't know, I, you know, I, I gave a talk in, in church a couple weeks ago and, you know, spoiler alert for anybody watching this for the first time and, and haven't seen any of our previous videos. I would consider myself probably in, ag, what's the word? Ag, I would consider myself agnostic at this point, um, religiously. And, you know, I was asked to give a, a talk uh, and I shared that at the beginning of the talk. Like, to be honest, I don't I don't know if this stuff is true or not. Um, and the number of jaws that just, you know, just such like, um, you know, a lot of people kind of shared that they appreciated it. But um, 
why isn't that okay? Like, why can't we just admit like, yeah, I struggle with, you know, pornography or I don't believe in God or, you know, I've had, you know, I, I drink alcohol every once in a while or whatever it is, you know, why can't we talk about that? I don't know. It, it frustrates me that, that there's such like a, a pedestal of perfection that, um, you know, people are dealing with their shit in the dark. And, yeah. and Zach, they before you jump in, because I know you have a too. good thought. So, so before you jump in, uh, Zach, and then Jordan, I want you to go next, but I just wanted to say this cause I just barely wrote it down. I feel like sometimes because of the way things are situated currently and they'll change in the future, but we accidentally publicly shame the honest and then preserve the people who won't share. Does that make sense? So I'm too scared to share my issues with pornography. I'm preserved because I can sit in my pew and take the sacrament. Everything's fine. No one knows. But if I'm honest, if I'm honest, sorry, you can't take the sacrament. So now this person who has, you know, become honest is publicly shamed. And people won't let their kids play with your kids anymore. (laughs) All right, Zach, I'm going to let you jump in. And then Jordan, I want you next. Yeah, and uh, Jordan's going to have a much stronger, more studied perspective on guilt, shame, and vulnerability, particularly in this um, context. But I, I also, I, all those were just great thoughts. And uh, Brian, I, I am also frustrated and sad to see, and, and to Spencer's point just barely, that it seems that if somebody wants to be dishonest and disingenuous, um, at least from a social perspective, they're rewarded. Um, whereas those who choose to be honest um, are not. And um, I would use the Savior's words and say they have their reward, mm-hmm. um, those who are dishonest, right? Uh, those who disfigure their faces in the streets and pretending to you know, have a struggle with fasting. I think that um, Christ has some pretty um, choice words um, for hypocrites and, and people who... But, what, but what Zach... Said, your, your whitened sepulchers is what he says. Yeah, yeah. But Zach, don't you think, don't you think that in a different situation, some of those who are being dishonest are very good people that would have a m- more ease to be able to come out with that? Like, I think the, the Savior may have a little bit of mercy in situations where a person feels terrified of the results of talking about yeah. a sip of alcohol yeah, I, or something. I think the Savior can have choice words for anybody, but even then, he's not saying you suck. And right, right. I just wanted to share some of my experiences with um, talking with a bishop for the same issues, masturbation and pornography. Um, my experience was a little bit different. Wait a second, we're that. not supposed to do those? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, so my experience with that, the, the first time, and this is, uh, to, this is interesting. So uh, my first exposure to pornography when I was, not, was when I was nine years old. I was at a slumber party for my birthday, and a buddy of mine gave me a website name. So I went and typed it up and got my mind blown, right? <laughs> Nine-year-old, like, wow, right? Go crazy. And, yeah, like as has been said in a couple of different studies and interpretations of, of pornography's impact on a developing mind, I mean, it's devastating. Um, so, you know, something, so for, th- for three years, didn't tell a single soul. Um, 
you know, it took the sacrament. I was after the age of eight, right? The age of accountability. So, I mean, it, from a technical standpoint, I'm now fully accountable for my mistakes, right? Uh, I am ordained a deacon and uh, I'm passing the sacrament and we're getting ready to go, which is again, if you're not, if you're doing things like that to the degree that I was doing them, I shouldn't have done, been doing that. And I knew that and I still chose to do it. Um, we were getting ready to go on my first temple trip. And for whatever reason, at that time, I, my conscience was struck. I, I couldn't do it. And my mom was driving me to the temple. And I said, mom, I don't think I'm worthy. And she was like, what do you mean? She was like laughing because she thought I was joking. And, and I told her basically everything that had been happening. And she's like, oh, wow. Um, she called up my dad and she said, hey, Bri, I'm talking with Zach. Um, he's not going to make it. Um, Did you get the belt? <laughs> so, so she's like, he's, it, it was kind of awkward too, because she's basically like relaying my report from, to my dad. So she's like, and he's, and you're, she's like, and he's been looking at pornography. And then I'm like, and I've been masturbating. She, oh, oh, and he's been masturbating. Oh, that, <laughs> you know, that, like, that too, that too. Yeah. And, and so if you can imagine that sort of a car ride home, it was kind of crazy to me, right? Oh, so later my dad gets well, home from work honest. and I'm thinking, oh shoot, like I am, I am undone. Uh, and I remember my dad just sat there and my mom was he, in their room. They had a chair and a bed and my mom was sitting on the bed. My dad was sitting in the chair and he looked at me and he smiled and he said, so looks like you got some, you've been, you've been going through some stuff. You know, I don't know the exact content, but basically they both just said, we love you. Um, you know, we'll, we'll tell, and they did, they said, we'll tell the, a little white lie, which is an interesting thing for this discussion. And they're like, we'll say you got sick and you can go to the thing. Um, I set up an appointment with the bishop, went to the bishop, uh, talked about it, couldn't take the sacrament for X amount of weeks. And it was awful for me to confess like, hey, yeah, I've been a deacon and all this, you know, and I was not worthy the whole time. And trying to wrap this up, sorry guys. Um, I remember for the, the first time I couldn't take the sacrament, my mom and dad sat on either side. And so, you know, they knew and I could kind of more comfortably pass it through, which I think was helpful for me. Um, but then later on in life, there were other times without their protection where I had made mistakes. I, I told them every time I had slip ups at the age of 14, 16, you know, the sobriety would kind of be long and then short and all that good stuff. Um, and I remember feeling a lot of resentment, like, why do I have to not take the sacrament in front of everybody? And why do I, and it happened, people would say, hey, I, can you pass the sacrament? And I had to tell, I was like, I'd be a priest and I have to tell a deacon, like, no, I can't, man. And it's like, wow. So I guess like Spencer said, now he knows. Um, but many And times, he's probably thinking why. like, oh crap, I can't either. <laughs> right. I don't know. <laughs> but I remember, I remember having moments of resentment and just being like, why, why do I have to do this? But then oddly enough, in my own head, I also thought to myself, you know, maybe this is good for you. And I know that people are going to probably have different interpretations of this and that's fine by me. But um, honestly, it was a really important step for me to keep messing up and be willing to say no to the sacrament even when I knew some people might see it because it wasn't about my perception it was about getting better um and I still messed up even after that right so even re coming to that understanding for myself was not the full solution and then I remember to wrap it up I had another meeting with my bishop and and I remember how my 
my perception of the atonement myself and all that kind of stuff with Christ has changed because I remember sitting in there and talking about how frustrated I was to my bishop. And he's like, well, you know, it, it, I, I'm not sure that you're understanding the atonement very well, Zach. And in that moment, I took that as if I understood the atonement better, I wouldn't do this. Which was kind of what he was saying, but not really. I was equating him to saying, well, Zach, you keep messing up because you don't understand the atonement. When looking back, and I don't know if that's what he meant, but it is what it means to me now, is that Christ was, had never stopped accepting me. It, was, it wasn't about my ward family's acceptance. It was about Christ's acceptance. Mm. I love that, Zach. Okay, Jordan, I need to hear from you. <clears throat> okay. Um, well, I, there's a, there's a lot to say, I guess. I, I think the, the biggest point or the, the biggest lesson that I draw from Zach's story there is that a lot of shame and, or otherwise, uh, begins in the family, I think more than anything, more than the church. Um, because as we see from Zach's example that, and can you hear me? Sorry, I'm not holding this up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think we see from Zach's example that, and I'm not saying his parents are perfect, but they were obviously really good parents, much like mine. Um, but they they reinforced the truth that they loved him no matter what, and that really helped his honesty. I think in in confronting these issues. Um, the other point I, I think I should make is that um, a lot of the time uh, in an effort to contrast or to combat the shame culture that is prevalent in the church, and I don't think anybody's denying that, I think oftentimes we try to swing the pendulum a little bit too far the other way and not recognize that uh, there are a lot of actions that are very detrimental. Uh, one okay. of them being pornography um, and uh, and any kind of, you know, sin having to do with chastity, because oftentimes if it develops into an addiction, it's never satisfied until, you know, you're down the road at a strip club after being married for 30 years, um, which I guess, I, I, you know, I, I uh, saw firsthand in my family, you know, so <clears throat> I think really going back to the family thing, it really starts a lot in the family. And I was lucky enough to have a, a dad that um, I think allowed me to feel honest or to feel like I could approach him with any issues that I had. I had similar stuff with Zach, like that Zach had. Uh, actually, it was nine years old as well. I was in a, a gas station in Hawaii, and there was like postcards and whatever else. And I, my mind was blown as well. Frontal <laughs> cortex gone. Um, but I, I still I, haven't uh, come back. <laughs> it still hasn't come back. You can see by the slope, I look like a Mayan. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I found that uh, my dad was very approachable. Mom. And I know my mom's listening to this and we have a very good relationship, but she wasn't as approachable back then. Um, I felt a lot of shame. Uh, and I think it, it was mostly due to uh, her orthodoxy 
and and how she was brought up that that was completely unacceptable. So I was kind of split in between, but I do know there's a lot of other people in and outside of the church that don't feel the, um, I guess, the courage enough to approach those closest to them, namely their parents or maybe their siblings or, or friends about the things that they're struggling with, depending on the culture that they're in. Obviously we're in a culture where um, any sort of uh, immoral activity is looked down upon significantly. And so that is a source of a lot of shame in our culture, but say you're in a different culture, like, I don't know, you know, you know, whatever it might be there, there's, there's shame in, in other cultures for different reasons. And um, whenever somebody goes through something, if they can't approach their parents or their friends or their siblings, it really festers in the dark and then the problem grows significantly. So as I see it, the shame problem is really an honesty problem. It's a vulnerability problem. And mm -hmm. had there been more beacons, perhaps in, in Zach's quorum or mine, that were uh, willing to say that they had an issue too, then there could have been built a camaraderie or a brotherhood that allowed them to combat this thing, which is an issue. You know, it's actually something that is problematic and that and i think it's very um it's a problem to not consider it problematic especially for a developing mind uh, and so I that's, that's kind of my I, lo I love that jordan and before i jump back to you bry i think uh i just want to say the i the importance of this discussion is the fact that um i, I just wanted to give voice to people that see issues culturally and also uh, maybe in some of the uh, handbook and the way that it's laid out and the way that we currently do things. I just want to give voice to that, not because I, I really think we're coming to a nice, like, I don't know, synergy of what we're all saying, which is vulnerability is the key. Like talking openly and actually recognizing that all of us were dealing with the same issues of human life. And having people on your team, like on your side, is what it's all about. Like it makes it so yeah. much better. And it, but but the reality is there are kids that are still still feeling alone. And so my goal is to give voice to the kids who feel alone. Figure out like drill down to the reasons why. Why, why is why are we communicating shame, and how can we improve? in the future because we can't communicate shame anymore. We need, but we need the guilt. We need it because it makes us better. Yeah. It's like, it's such a good thing like Zach was saying. So Brian, did you have any additional comments you wanted to make? I know we had some stuff in here about AA and things like yeah. that, if that was a good could place I, for it. Could I sneak something in real quick before then? Uh, yeah. Just, sorry, quick, real quick, Brian. Can I sneak I something in before Jordan's comment though? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, um, it's, I, th I think the shame, the, where that comes from is shame itself. Um, oftentimes, you, you know, those that are fearful will prey on other people uh, so that they're not alone. And it's kind of like what everybody's seeking is the connection. And so if you're feeling shame, then it'd really be nice if 
everybody else felt shame too. So it, it goes both ways. Yeah. Go there ahead, Brian. Go. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think it's, um, I think there's two parts of it, right? So there is the person, um, who's done something wrong that's not being open about it, but usually the person is not being open about it because they don't feel like they're going to be accepted. Um, you know, I, I grew up, um, you know, half of my family is almost like Pharisee-like uh, Mormon uh, background where it's, they're just very, very, very strongly religious. And, and uh, you know, similar to your experience, Jordan, I, I felt like if I did something wrong, if I made a mistake, um, that that was a, you know, my parents took it as a personal failure. And I am not a good parent because my child made this mistake. And it was so strong that I never felt like I, I could openly talk about this stuff that I was dealing with. Um, yeah, in, in regards to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I know several, uh, several friends of mine, cycling buddies, um, various people have gone through Alcoholics Anonymous and it's incredible how it's almost like the, the vegan joke, like everybody who's been in it after a five minute conversation has already talked about it. Um, it's, it's incredible how, you know, in two of the steps, I think step five is you admit to God yourselves and other human beings that you have an issue. And then, so they, you know, they are much better than I say we are in, you know, the, the LDS Mormon culture of saying, Hey, this is, this is my problem. Um, the, the last step, I think step 12 is like, once you're on the right path, you help other people also solve that problem. So there's like a community thing where like, I don't succeed unless you succeed with me. Um, I think the most damaging idea in the Mormon culture is the idea that sin is individual, right? I think it should be, if someone is making a mistake, it is our problem. It's not that person's problem. Um, I just think it's detrimental that, and I think, again, it, it goes both ways. Like we don't feel open to talk about our crap um, because we're, we have a fear of not being accepted. Right. And at the same time, we probably judge other people if we see their crap um, and don't accept them as well. So it, it comes on both sides. Definitely. So, um, in, I think it was Brene Brown's video, she talked about vulnerability and, and one interesting thing that I thought was important that she said was an element of vulnerability was vulnerability doesn't care as much about what the truth that you reveal or how the truth that you will reveal will be received because we understand vulnerability as taking a risk where we do not know the outcome. So somebody who is going to the bishop may feel like they're walking towards oblivion of some kind, and they are being vulnerable by, will, by being willing to put themselves in front. I don't know if the way that the church is currently set up is perfect in terms of how we confess sins to a bishop if it reaches a certain level of severity, um, withholding the sacrament, all that stuff. But I, I also worry that there could potentially be too much of a communal weight placed on the decisions of other people. So I myself have ventured, wandered, struggled through 12-step programs, um, 
I've gone to meetings and and uh, you, if you ever find yourself in one of those meetings, and I know I'm not going to give this all the justice. And again, there are some people who can speak much better to the step specifically, but a lot of it is around you taking accountability for yourself and your relationship with your higher power. Not because it is the only thing that's important in life, because as Jordan said, connection is probably one of the biggest antidotes. There is so much that so much work that's done on an individual level that has very little to do with the efforts of those around us. Because as has been shared, I was so fortunate to have parents that were willing to talk to me. Um, but there were other family issues we went through as a family where my parents would would say themselves that they did not handle it well and in a loving way. And that was a lesson that they needed to learn as well and would say as much. So I, I share a lot of these positive highlights only to emphasize that there is a lot of good that is being done and that there are, are certain elements of goodness that should be acknowledged while we make the obvious and needed observation and statement that we need to teach vulnerability. Um, and I think by teaching vulnerability, it, it helps us to become more empathetic towards vulnerability. But I think that choosing vulnerability of your own free will and independently is the first step. Zach, I love it. Um, the best meeting I had in church was an Ellers Quorum where the stake presidency came. <clears throat> and it was a super awesome stake president. I had always liked him. I actually had an interview with him before I left on my mission. I had just got back from my mission, sitting in the singles ward. And the entire Elders Quorum is there. And he goes, uh, who here has seen pornography? And then he raised his hand, like as high as he could. Like the stake, the stake president, you know what I mean? And in that moment, like looking at my stake president, raising his hand and looking around and suddenly every, you know, all of these hands are up and you know, my hands up. And for the first time in a church meeting, we had an honest, great, like, it was like, it was like a healing moment for me because I'm like, I'm not alone. I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there and like almost in tears. I'm not alone. And that's what, that's what we need more of in all of our meetings is like someone willing to raise their hand. Like I think issues of faith are a scary topic right now, but like if someone can raise their hand and say, I'm struggling with my faith, who else? You know what I mean? Because I think, I think that hand raising is healing. It provides a space. Right. It provides a space for people to wrestle with issues of faith, to wrestle with issues of behavior in a different way. And when we are shutting those down, and I'm not saying the church is doing this by any stretch. I'm just saying, but if, if we shut it down as a culture or we're shutting it down within our families, we're not providing opportunities for people to actually grow past struggles. So let, let me just kind of jut in with uh, something that's in both the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants that suggests that we go to our meetings to confess our sins one to another and that we kind of build. And it says, you know, right there in what we would consider more uh, canonized doctrine. And, um, and yet, uh, we've all had those experiences where 
I was in an elders quorum and I just raised my hand because I don't really give a crap what anybody thinks to be quite honest uh, about this stuff. And I was just like, Hey, so I have this problem. I go to 12 step and uh, you know, I just couldn't really stop masturbating. So I, I think we should talk about that. And, uh, and you know, I kind of gave my spiel and, uh, and I got shut down in that, in that elders quorum. Like, he's like, well, you know, maybe take it up with the bishop. But that was, that was kind of one instance where there was another elders quorum where I was actually the, the quorum president. And um, one of our teachers, he happened to be this, this big old Hawaiian guy, really funny dude. And he gets up there and he's like, so um, I prepared this lesson from the handbook or from, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but I got this impression that we could maybe choose. So those of you who want to talk about the lesson that was prepared for this week, uh, raise your hand. And those who want to talk about masturbation, raise your hand. We could talk about one or the other. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, hey, I'm the other form president, and uh, we're just going to talk about masturbation. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> and so it ended up being a really unifying thing for our quorum, and I think a lot of people um, finally felt like they, they came out of the, you know, the darkness, came into the light a little bit. And that's really the point of these quorums, these, the, you know, the meetings. I heard a quote, one, I can't remember where, when it was, but uh, somebody said, the sweetest smell you can have in a sacrament meeting is that of cigarette smoke, you know? And that's somebody that I think understands it just a little bit more. Because why else, you know, do we go to church? Like, do we go there to, like, flaunt ourselves to, you know, like, to show everybody else how great we are, like, to pray from the street corners, you know? Or are we going there to, like, improve our lives? And yep. um, and it really sucks that, you know, there is a culture of, like, well, I smoke, so I'm probably not going to go to church, you know? And, um and I'm not saying that, you know, you could get off on a theological debate and discussion about whether or not the church actually will help those people that smoke or, you know, or have an addiction in whatever form or, you know, are struggling with their marriage. But I, I do feel like no matter what, there could be a change in that culture to allow for people that want some sort of a connection to come to the fold and see how maybe a higher power, whether it be a collective body or congregation or a deity can help them as an individual. Awesome. So Brian, any final thoughts as we're, we're, we're drawing close to an hour here on our recording. So we should probably start wrapping this up, but let's, let's, let's go around the table here. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple thoughts. So I think the issue that we have with shame in the Mormon faith is not only specific to sin, although obviously that's a big portion of it. Um, some examples that I see, even in my own family and beliefs that, that exist in my own family, uh, if you take medication for anxiety, depression, anything like that, uh, that's shameful. You're not praying hard enough, right? You're not relying on the, the atonement enough. Um, if you are, are gay or, or homosexual, uh, you're, that is shame in and of itself, right? It's not guilt for doing something bad. It's you are wrong, right? And how do you tell someone 
that it, it just, you know, boggles my mind. Um, you know, both my, my mom and my wife really just dislike being stay at home moms just was not for either of them. And the shame that both of them have felt with, I remember my mom telling me that she has like argued with God. Like, why did you make, if this is what I'm supposed to be, why did you make me hate this so much? Right. Um, you know, on a personal note, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, essentially I, you know, my, my, my faith in the Mormon church, uh, for me started to dwindle slowly over time as I just was exposed to more information about psychology and history and evolution and all these different scientific topics that do not align with the Mormon faith. And when I am open and honest about not believing, I am treated as if I have a defect, right? I don't like I did something wrong, whereas I would argue that, you know, you can see in statistics that the most educated people tend to usually be the most agnostic or atheist, um, which, yeah, that, that hurts me a little bit that I'm treated as if I am, it, I have an issue because I don't believe. Um, so yeah, and, and, you know, Jordan could probably speak to this, but, you know, uh, being, more than 25 and, and not married in, in the Mormon faith is seen as like, Oh, you're damaged goods, right? You're There's something wrong society. with you. Um, me and me and my wife. So my last thought, actually a question. So me and my wife had this thought, um, or, or this question, like, um, like if there were no shame associated or attached to serving a mission, would you have not gone at all or come home early? My answer is a resounding yes. I was like clinically depressed my first transfer. And I was just like, the thoughts of suicide were getting closer and I've never had issues with suicide before. Um, but the only reason that I stayed out is that if I came home early, I was not worthy of a mate and at, you know, a, a worthy young woman to, to be married to me. And I would argue that a lot of people serve missions out of shame of not being a return missionary. And, and, and at the same time, you know, people throughout the church, you know, have that same on the other side. Like I don't, you know, I don't want to marry someone who's not a return missionary. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm curious for you guys, if there were no shame, you know, what what is your relationship with with your mission? If there were no shame attached to it, would you have come home early? Would you have stayed out, um, or or did you ever experience that shame attached or lack of shame since we all served missions? Um, I mean, did you see that and experience that? Um, absolutely. Um. I would say, and we could dedicate a whole episode to this because, because I mean, we just really, I mean, let's, let's touch on it, but like, there's no way we could wrap this up on this topic because I just feel like all four of us serve missions. There is so much. There's so much meat in this. About. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but I say, and, 
is this our so sorry guys in the middle of the show i am meta showing right now yeah. is this my final comments as well for the show or? yeah let, let, let's let's go okay. ahead and wrap up right now so that perfect. we're right in an hour perfect because and i think and i think my response will segue into that and then i'll just hand it over to jordan or you spencer um brian like yes oh man first couple of first couple of days in the mtc first two months in the mission field and and plenty of struggle, um, concern, anxiety, um, but holy cow, I am so glad I stayed. I am so, and I and I don't know, I don't know what to make of that because you could say that initially my intentions and my motives, not good, selfish, uh, highly influenced by external cultural factors, um, but I do believe that there were pieces of me that were not fully along that feeling um and i am so for i am so glad i stayed um and i'll leave it at that um for everybody else to kind of share their experiences however they you know second that question and it leads me to a parting question um and i know that from an epistemological perspective this is a challenging question because there are multiple moving parts depending on what your belief system is but I would say, um, if there is a real truth out there, is it more important how you package that truth or that people use that truth? And I, I, it's, it sounds like a binary question. And I myself believe that the, the answer is more complex than either or. But I think that it has a place in tonight's discussion. Is it more important how truth is given? And I'm saying more important, and I'm not excluding the importance of uh, of of it being of how you package truth to be important. But is how you present truth more important than living a truth that you know is true? And that's it for me. Awesome. Jordan, do you want to yeah. do you want to go into your thoughts and sure well, to answer after? Brian's yeah to answer Brian's question for sure I was split down the road I would say there would be a default uh, of shame if I didn't go or if I came home early <clears throat> but I don't think that was at the forefront of my mind I think at the forefront of my mind was the glory that I would find if I did go. Uh, <laughs> which is I, which is essentially just sure. the opposite side of shame it yeah it's, it, it would be maybe the light like shame there's like the shame is the shadow side of the glory yeah and the, and the, if you're, you're familiar with Jung but then uh yeah this would be kind of the lighter side and and so you know having that in my vision especially being the oldest in the grade you know having my mission call on graduation day in high school it was just that was like, legendary so cool <laughs> yeah yeah right me and nate Newman. but i i i found that that was uh that was my bigger motivation but when i got out there i know and i don't know how it'd be otherwise because i didn't come home but i know i developed ocd significantly like the clinical you know take medication kind um on my mission and i didn't take medication um until you know a few years ago but i i developed a scrupulosity that was significant enough to i would say like break my brain but at the same time you know i i gotta reflect what 
or I guess reiterate what Zach said. I I don't feel I don't know how it would have been, you know, otherwise had I come home early and if there was no sh culture of shame, I can't speak to that because that's not the reality of it. But I, I am grateful that I I did something difficult that may or may not have led me to something better for myself. And I, I think what it led for me to, it led me to a place where I guess you could say my ego has died. And that sounds really egotistical, <laughs> but I, I, I think just a little over a year ago, I, I, I've gotten to this point where my scrupulosity and my shame got so excruciating that it allowed me to kind of have a, a rebirth. And that has helped me so much that I can't really express it. And I think it's a whole other topic, like Zach said, but um it's allowed me to accept what is and allowed me to see that what i have been given is not has not been given by me nor by any other person but uh what i've been given is exactly what i've been given and accepting that has brought me the the serenity that i think i've been looking for all along in, in my awesome. pursuit sure. of glory or whatever it might be Hey Spence, That's can awesome. I give a can I give a thirty second rebuttal and then you can bring us home? Yeah, please. So so sure. respond respond to to Zach's comment. Um, I am also extremely glad I, I stayed out on my mission the whole time. Um, that doesn't change the fact that if there were no shame involved in coming home early or not going at all, I probably would have come home early. Um, and based on Jordan, I I you know a, a response to kind of one of your previous comments. Um, the 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 moment where I learned to not give a shit about what other people thought about me just released all this tension on my shoulders of not feeling like I can like I have to bottle up my problems inside and not talk about them. So I I don't know how that came about. Maybe it's just like so much pain and anguish over so many years that it's like f this i i hate this like why am i doing this anymore um but yeah once once i got to that realization of like you know if if none of my neighbors really want anything to do with me because i'm not a, a perfect you know believer who goes to church and you know uh does you know doesn't ride their bike on sundays and doesn't drink an alcoholic beverage every once in a while then i don't you know i don't really need their relationship either so yeah <laughs> yeah uh well, thank you. I, um, I will say, uh, kind of in closing, <clears throat> I, I loved every single thought that was given tonight because I feel like it's true. It's vulnerable. You know what I mean? Like we, we had real thoughts tonight. Uh, part of my heart breaks, right? When I hear, you know, Jordan say like there was things developed on his mission that led to almost his brain breaking but then part of my heart totally like screams for joy when you look back at it and see growth uh, and I feel like uh, that's key so going to Brian's question it's it's a difficult question to answer I think because all of us finished our mission so um, I look back at my mission and say, what a wonderful thing, because it 
uh, it showed me that I can do hard things. I can do friggin' hard things. And that was hard. And, and uh, it gave me like this tenacity where I was like, you know, bring it on. Bring on anything because I can. I will say, though, to validate uh, the thoughts, um, <clears throat> I, after my mission, my mom asked me one time early on because there was all this news articles coming out about missionaries coming home from depression and anxiety. And she was like, were you depressed on your mission? And for the first time, I looked back on my mission and I was like, yes, I was severely depressed on my mission. You know, and, and I didn't recognize it, but I, it, my mind went back to a time. This is sad. Like, I, I think I even said this to my mom. I was like, does crying on the bathroom floor every single morning count as depression? <laughs> she was like, she was like, she was like, yes. And, and it was because the only place I could cry in secret was in the bathroom because I didn't have my companion with me. And that's sad. But I remember crying and, and hitting my head on a brick wall in the morning to the point where it would hurt. I mean, it was like, I mean, clinical severe depression. But, but again, I do, I do look back on it with a, a level of fondness because I grew. I improved and and uh, granted that was the first you know three months of my mission where that was really really severe and difficult and over time I grew out of that and I grew from it and I have you know all of these wonderful things that I, I, I can say about it and do say about it now I loved the experience <clears throat> but also I knew in high school how to play the <laughs> and on my mission I knew how to play the Mormon fiddle really really well <laughs> You know, and I played into that cultural, that cultural thing. Oops, I kicked the camera here. But I think my, my point is, guys, vulnerable conversations. This is, this is the stuff. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, you know, that it, it, what matters is vulnerability with what we are actually dealing with, not necessarily um, a, a certain person's belief. Because when a person's vulnerable and talks about these issues, I, I feel like that's the only space in which we can learn and grow from our past experiences. So thanks, guys. You guys rock. I, I've, I've got one more comment um, just as background information for anybody watching. So these guys have been my best friends since I was probably 14 years old. And the pornography, the masturbation, all that stuff, I didn't know. I mean, all, all of our issues, I don't think we knew about each other until like two years ago. And it <laughs> pisses me off that the people who we feel like know us best and the people who we feel like will not judge us still don't feel like they can talk to us. Uh, it just pisses me off that we live. And I don't want to blame it on culture or anything like that, but it just makes me so sad that yeah. we even to our best friends put on a fake persona for like 15 years before we were able to actually be real with each other. It just, man, it makes me sad and pisses, makes me sad and angry. Ah! <laughs> I love it. I love it. Love the yeah, piss. I, angry. I don't think we're going to be able to close. That's with what the song. we can change. I hope. I don't think we can close with the song. It'll be a little uh, off kilter if we uh, try to beatbox and sing at the same time. So I think we just, 
we just call it a we call it a night. 